0: Welcome to the Dr. Vincent Buscemi podcast, the survival guide for dentists. I usually say it's the best dental podcast, but my wonderful guest today also has a podcast. So I'm going to say it's tied for the best with Dr. Natalia Brown's podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, How's your day going?
1: My day is going great. And thank you so much for the kind intro. Um, Uh, I'm really excited to be able to collaborate and have this chat that hopefully will be really helpful to um, all of the listeners.
0: So I know for a fact it will be helpful because nobody reaches out and asks anything clinical. The main concern, and maybe you find this too, dentists are struggling. They're stressed. They're depressed. They're sad. Financially, they're bankrupt. Emotionally, they're bankrupt. And you fit in perfectly with that. So my main question is, why did you stop practicing dentistry and what made you or inspired you to switch over to life coaching? Do you feel stuck on the financial hamster wheel? You keep paying on your debts like mortgages, car notes, student and business loans, but they never seem to disappear. My name is Dr. Howard Polanski, former dentist, now founder of Cashflow Coach USA. I guide families and business owners through a simple system dramatically reduce your payment towards debt you keep your same lifestyle and keep more money each month a recent client will pay off their house in just seven months instead of the anticipated 20 years free 10-minute discovery call will determine if I can help you too. go to cashflowcoachusa.com scan the QR code or call 512-608-1020 to find financial freedom faster Are you tired of using ineffective cosmetics and personal care products filled with harmful chemicals? Meet Ancestral Cosmetics, and our range of highly effective products rooted in ancestral wisdom and made with edible ingredients such as beef tallow, olive oil and raw local honey. Check out our best-selling tallow and honey balm for soft and smooth skin or our revolutionary tooth powder made from eggshells for effective teeth cleaning and whitening without any toxic ingredients. Free US shipping for orders over $50 and you can shop now at AncestralCosmetics.com
1: Yeah. Well, that's a really great question. And I mean, I could talk for hours about that, so I will condense it. (laughs) Um, I I will be very clear in saying that I didn't leave clinical, you know, most people think, oh, you left clinical practice because you couldn't stand it and you were totally burnt out. And that's actually not true at all. Um, When I felt burnt out, I was owning a practice and I was totally in over my head didn't know how to manage the practice at all, Um, felt alone, felt isolated, super stressed out. I had two young children at the time, one that was still nursing. And um, so when I came to decide that I was going to sell my practice, uh, I felt totally burnt out and I I didn't think I had any other options. So when I sold my practice and went back to being an associate, Uh, It was because I was so overwhelmed with practice ownership, but I never hated the dentistry. Uh, As an endodontist, I I loved going in, doing endos, super gratifying. Um, It was actually after I sold the practice that I got, um, uh, you know, cued into or tapped into coaching work, introduced to, I suppose that's the, the word I'm looking for. I was introduced to coaching work and I worked with several coaches, right? Me as the client. And I got to see, oh my goodness, like this is really good stuff, right? I I started to see gradual improvements in different areas of my life. This is all while I was an associate. So one thing led to another and I decided to train and become a coach myself. And after starting my coaching business, that's when I ultimately decided to um, stop clinical practice. But at that time, it wasn't a decision to leave clinical practice because I couldn't stand it. It was more like, oh, I, I get to help people in a different way that's pretty awesome and a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, when I say that I've stopped practicing, I, I always kind of, you know, I, I don't know if, if other people will relate, but like, you know, being a dentist is, is kind of like this fundamental part of our identity. We've worked so hard for it. And I don't know that I will ever speak in terms of past tense You know, like I was a dentist. Um, And the beauty of our profession, too, is, you know, I I have an active license. Who knows if I'll go back and practice in some capacity in the future. Um, But, yeah, hopefully that kind of answers that question a little bit.
0: What about ownership brought you to your limits? Well, it's interesting. That's an interesting question because
1: at the time I would have been pointing fingers at everything in the situation. It was a super long commute. I was barely paying myself anything if, if anything at all. Um, you know, I had great patients, but I had a lot of staff turnover, uh, owning dentists the prior owner took off immediately. There wasn't really a transition period. Um, you know, I, I would have just been pointing fingers. Well, it was this, 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 this. And ultimately I actually had, uh, a staff member like what was my breaking point was a staff discovering that a staff member was stealing from the office and thinking to myself like you know this is above my my pay grade this is not what i went to school for this is not the kind of problem that i derive joy from solving (laughs) and so in my mind you know i i felt very victim-y like you know look at this position that i'm in and there's no way to get out of it except to sell um Now, looking back, um, sure, I can understand all those stressors that I had at that time. I can validate how I was feeling. And I do occasionally think, you know, had I had the tools that I have now, would there have been a different outcome? You know, would I have been processing those problems in the same way? Or would I have instead, um, you know, been able to handle them and kind of rise to the occasion in a, in a different way, you know? And I'm not necessarily saying that everybody that owns a practice should own their practice indefinitely. And that there's never a a time that you should make a decision to sell. Absolutely not. But looking back, I probably would say, you know, when we are in a place of reactivity where we're like, Oh my gosh, I can't handle this anymore. That's, not usually when we make the best clear headed decisions. And, and, and I mean that in terms of dental practice and, and, you know, how we, um, how we handle the stressors in our practice as well as things outside, right? Like personal relationships, right? Um, marriages, I can't stand my spouse. I need to go get a divorce. (laughs) It's like, let's slow down. Let's think about things carefully. And even if the decision is to divorce or to sell the practice, how can we do that from a mindful, thoughtful place as opposed to a spirit of you know, reactivity? This is my only option. I have to do this. My happiness is dependent on it. It needs to happen now. <laughs> like I couldn't sell my practice fast enough. That's how I felt at the time.
0: So Um, when you sold your practice, were you in that spirit of reactivity or do you think it was a clear headed, thoughtful decision?
1: Oh, I a hundred percent was in a reactive fight or flight, right? Like I was like, oh, I can either fight this out. And my thought process was, this is going to be a battle and it's going to take years or I can run away from this situation by selling it, you know, now it's very possible that maybe selling the practice was a hundred percent the best decision for me, but it was not necessarily, uh, a decision that I came to from inner sense of calm and certainty.
0: Were there people in your life? I'm not sure if you're married. Um, Mm -hmm. were, so was your husband, did you consult with him? Did you have close friends that were like, I'm trying to sell. Did they give you advice like wait it out?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, Well, let me start by saying I didn't talk about it with that many people, probably because I had a fair amount of shame about it. Um, In other words, I had the strong notion as a dentist that you graduate from dental school. In my case, I did a GPR, and then I went into endo, and upon graduation... That the standard formula was I would be an associate for a period of time, and then eventually either partner into a practice or own a practice. Fast forward 30 years later, I would retire, and then end of story.
0: Right? And then enjoy your life,
1: right? right. Yeah, and <laughs> and so and that's kind of a, you know like a, a a nice bonus perk if that happens, right? <laughs> and and so it was just kind of like this. Cookie cutter formula, you know, nobody tells you this in dental school, but like I kind of got that notion. So once I did buy the practice, um, I I dove right in. I was like, "Well, this is gonna be like this is gonna be the marriage that I'm gonna be in for however many years, so I better make some changes that are uh, you know really important." I invested a lot of money and time trying to change things around. Um, and so, uh, getting back to your question, which was, which was
0: what? Sorry. <laughs> the most important people in your life. Oh yeah. You said, were you consulting right. with them?
1: Yeah. So, so I dove in thinking this is going to be like a 30 year thing. So when I started to have thoughts of, oh wait, maybe this isn't the best fit for me. Right. Maybe I want to divorce from this practice. Um, I didn't feel that comfortable talking to people about it. I, I, May have mentioned it to a couple people and um, especially family members. That was very tricky. Like, oh, my goodness, what do you mean you're going to sell? Like, um, you know, you you totally you should stick it out or, oh, it's not going to be that bad. It's kind of like when you have a kid and, uh, you know, the first couple years are hard and then it's going to get easier and and whatnot. So there there was a, a little bit of fear with bringing it up fear that I was going to feel ashamed. I already felt ashamed, not even, you know, without talking to people. So I, I really didn't talk about it with that many people. I think that was part of the problem. You know, I, I, as I had mentioned, I felt totally unsupported. I didn't really feel like I had people that I could talk to about it, much less people that could really best advise me and give me good advice. Like, Hey, this is the situation. Um, both from a numbers standpoint, like, Hey, this, this is how much I'm producing. Uh, I'm not paying myself because of X, Y, and Z as well as support from an, from an emotional standpoint and leadership standpoint, right? Like, um, I was acutely aware, uh, or becoming acutely aware of my shortcomings as a leader. Um, I didn't necessarily see how I could solve that. So I could see the shortcomings, but I wasn't necessarily sure how to overcome it. And so, so yeah, I, I, you know, I guess to answer your question, I I didn't feel comfortable talking with uh, about it with a lot of people. I wasn't aware at the time of any coaches or consultants, um, whose sole job is to help people that are having a hard time, um, either practice owners or associates, you know, whatever the case may be. I didn't know that it existed if it did. I mean, I almost feel like in the last, you know, I owned my practice eight years ago. So I kind of feel like in that timeframe, there's been a big shift, you know, as far as what I've noticed um, within dentistry, there's, you know, been, a little bit more awareness, like, hey, there are people that are, that are um, here to help, that can help you. Um, so you don't have to go at it alone. I think that's the biggest thing for me is that I, I, I just felt alone. That was a, a recurring theme.
0: That's such a recurring theme. And all the dentists I talked to, even all the people I podcast with, aloneness. And we have a mutual friend, Laura Brenner, and she talked about how she went to a therapist who wasn't a dentist. And actually she she felt more alone because she couldn't even connect to this person. because they had no idea what she was going through. But I want to back up one step. What were your perceived shortfalls or inadequacies of a leader that you were aware of but couldn't fix? So I'll start with just what comes to my
1: mind. Um, When I bought the practice, I mentioned that the – prior dentist, took off immediately. And so did the staff. There, there were two staff, a pretty small office, two staff members, one that left immediately, the other one that took off after a month. So I was in a position where I, I had this practice, and I needed to find at least one body, if not two people that were, you know, ideally two people that were going to come and help. And so I was able to um, recruit people that I had worked with previously from, from offices um, beforehand when I was an associate. Um, and I felt very much like, hey, it's pretty clear. I don't know what I'm doing. You've been doing this for a while. And so there was almost like a power imbalance where I was really relying on the expertise and the know-how of my staff. And I remember being advised by, um, you know, one of the dentists that I had previously worked for, and they said, be really careful with that dynamic because, you know, if the staff knows that you totally need them and that they're completely, um, you know, irreplaceable, you're leaving yourself in a really vulnerable position, you know, and um, when I bought the practice I was pregnant with my second kid. And so as soon as I had the kid, you know, I I hustled as much as I could while I was pregnant, you know, trying to meet referring dentists and market and that kind of thing. And obviously train the staff that I did manage to find and and hire. Um, But once I had my baby, I remember feeling very much like I just need to trust that my staff is gonna do what they need to do. I was not a micromanager. I did not learn how to do every job in the office, which uh, you know, until one of them would quit, and then I would have to say, "Oh crap! I I need to know how to do this." Right? So there were a lot of areas where I was, uh, I I was vulnerable. Right? If they took off, now we have a whole, The other staff member isn't cross trained. Got to get them cross trained, but to do that, I need to learn how to do everything first. Right? And that's one of my core beliefs still is as an owner, you know, I, I believe that the owner needs to know how to do everything. Do they need to know how to do it perfectly? Not necessarily. Do they need to know how to do it better than everybody? Not necessarily, but they need to know, you know, like the show must go on <laughs> and I don't enjoy talking about it, but the reality of the situation is that there were a handful of days in my practice where I was so I was short staffed, not just, you know, I had two staff members the majority of the time that I owned. Occasionally, one would be out sick or whatnot. Fine. I'd have that one other person. There were times that I had nobody. <laughs> I was a one-woman show. And um, the reason I'm bringing this up is because, you know, it was in those moments that I was like, yeah, I do need to know how to sterilize an inst- you know the instruments. I do need to know how to collect payments. I do need to know how to process insurance submitted an insurance claim, et cetera. Um, you know, some offices will have the office manager or front desk person, you know, remote in and, and process things after hours or whatever. That's great. But as the owner, I still think it's really important to know how to do everything. Um, the other reason, right, even if you have fabulous staff and you totally trust them, you still need to be auditing things. They need to know that you're watching them, right? It's really important I think for the health of the practice. And, um, you know, ultimately that was a big area of vulnerability for me, even when I wasn't short staffed, I wasn't really paying attention. I wasn't really looking at the day sheets and making sure everything lined up. Um, So, you know, those are things that, you know, if I could have a conversation with my past self, it would be like, hey, these these are some really important ways to up your leadership skills. And make sure that you're running a sound practice. And, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, right? I mean, this is really just me having learned from a whole bunch of mistakes. Like I could write a book <laughs> on what not to do,
0: right? Can I write the introduction? Because I have a lot of what not to do as well. Yeah. Um, as you're talking, I, I, like, I feel you in my heart because staff stole from you. They feel irreplaceable. I don't do root canals anymore because they are so technically sensitive. You're doing the best root canals you can. You get to verify payroll. Some days you're by yourself. Of course you feel like the world is collapsing on you. I feel that way and I have staff. When you were in there and you were by yourself and nobody was there, what were you thinking? Like, I totally messed up. I'm in the wrong position. How could this happen to me? Because that's going to be a scary feeling for any dentist to be by themselves in their practice.
1: Yeah, yeah, and yes, and it's interesting because the the first there's several things that come to my mind. Um, in the moment, I'm just thinking the show must go on. Mm-hmm. You know, um, on the car ride home, I'm bawling my eyes out. Right. So, um, I've told this story in, in various lectures that I've given, but you know, um, at the time when I owned my practice, I, I, I lived in San Francisco, and I was commuting across the Golden Gate Bridge. Here's this gorgeous bridge, beautiful, breathtaking views. You know, people come from all over the world to see the Golden Gate Bridge. I'd be driving home, and almost every day for over two years, I would be bawling. I wouldn't be taking in the beautiful view. I would be thinking like, what have I done? I'm a horrible endodontist. I'm a horrible leader. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, You know, I don't see an end in sight. And as if that's not enough, it also translated into me, you know, feeling a ton of, mommy guilt, because, you know, I was gone the majority of the day. Right? So it was truly the feeling of burning the candle from both ends. But it's interesting, your question, because I actually, you know, during that time, I that I owned a practice, I actually worked with a dentist that didn't have any staff.
0: No staff at all. A general dentist,
1: A general dentist, no staff at all. And, you know, I, I could never imagine not working with any staff. Granted, it happened to me a handful of times and it was super stressful. But the only reason I'm bringing this up is because something that I've learned through coaching that, that I help all of my clients learn uh, or come to, you know, kind of finagle in, and massage in their own mind is that it's really easy to look at our situation and identify, oh, this is what made me stressed out or this made me stressed out, you know, like this is what's wrong with my situation, therefore I am now entitled to feel stressed out. And don't get me wrong, when I was short staffed, for sure, (laughs) I was stressed out. But the reason I'm mentioning this general dentist that had no staff is because he designed his practice that way. And he was happy as a clam. Patients loved him. And if you ask, if you ask the majority of practice owners, like what their number one stressor is, (laughs) it's staff. (laughs) And so it's actually kind of funny to me because, you know, here's a dentist that by design had no staff. He was doing great. And so it's it's not actually the act of having staff or not having staff that's going to make it or break it. It's how we're processing, how we are handling that situation, and if we're really being mindful about how we're responding to the situation. So how do I apply that in my situation? Okay, I was short-staffed. That wasn't by design. I wasn't doing that by choice. And yet what control did I have in the matter? Well, it was a choice for me to show up and see those patients anyway. It was a choice for me to show up and get those treatments done and do every job in the office, uh, including trying to pick up the phone, (laughs) right? I had that choice. I could have also said, you know what? We're short staffed today, we're closing down, or I'm gonna do half the volume, or whatever. Like, I mean, there's actually a whole bunch of options. And in that moment, I, I don't know that I really considered any of those options. I didn't see them as options. In my mind, it was just the bottom line of, I got to keep patients happy. I got to produce dentistry. I got to bring in money, right? That, that was all I was fixated on. I, I got to do these things. It has to happen. Otherwise, dun, 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 something bad is going to happen a negative Yelp review because I canceled an appointment on them or, you know, whatever. Right. So, so a lot of times we lock ourselves into feeling stressed out because we're afraid of actually establishing some healthy boundaries for ourselves.
0: At any point with your staff, were they crossing these boundaries? And then you learned later in life how to establish these healthy boundaries? all the time. All the time.
1: <laughs> oh, all the time. I mean, the, the easiest one I can think of, and I had so many, I mean, I cycled through so many staff members, but I can definitely think of, you know, staff members that were, uh, b- on both sides of the spectrum showing up late. Um, maybe I would say something, maybe I wouldn't for fear that they would get upset and quit. Uh, I had the opposite. I had staff members that would show up early, clock in early, try to get a few extra bucks, try to get overtime. I'd have staff members that wouldn't, you know, obviously this, this varies by state, but I'm in California. And at least at the time, I think this still stands by law. They're required to take 30 minute lunch break if they are working an eight hour day or over a, a certain amount of hours in the day. They're supposed to clock out for 30 minutes. If they clock in at 27 minutes, then, you know, you can, and, and that's a repeated thing. You can, as the owner get fined for, you know, having not given them the full 30 minutes, you can also be required to pay them, you know, whatever the extra is, whatever over time for sure. So, All that to say, I had all these different things happening with staff, and these are just a few small examples. I mean, I could probably dig out a whole bunch more where I felt sheepish about being upfront about establishing, you know, and clarifying, you know, articulating and clarifying these are the expectations. I was operating from a place of fear. If I lead and if I um, am a strong leader, then they're going to get upset. They're going to go to some other office. And, and look, this is back in 2015, 2016. Now, fast forward with COVID, I know that there's so many dentists that are operating from that same place of fear, scarcity, thinking, hey, you know, they get my staff gets to call the shots because, you know, they could just pick what office they want to work at. And so they're not necessarily leading from a place of empowerment
0: and really in turn taking care of their own needs as well. So I'm a practicing dentist still. Although I try to think in abundance, there is a reality to the scarcity of staff. I live in Michigan and in terms of like hygiene, there's like four hygienists left in the state of Michigan and I have two of them. So I totally sympathize with if you, you don't have to pick your battles, but then maybe you feel this way too. You're resenting these people because you busted your ass for 10 years, you're $500,000 in debt, and now this entitled person who doesn't invest a million dollars into a practice shows up 20 minutes late, and you can't say anything. So when you're stuck in that position with the reality of scarce workforce, how do you think from a power a stance of abundance and powerfulness
1: yeah i think that's a really great question um you know before jumping to any conclusions i would always i I always think it's helpful to look at the facts of the situation right so for example uh we we actually don't have the data on or i don't believe we have the data on you know how many hygienists exist in your state. <laughs> there's five. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you might have that in your mind, but we don't really know, right? Like, um, you know, so so you may have that thought, okay, there's five. And, and let's say there actually are only five. Yeah. Let, let's just say that's truth, okay? Number one, let's look at the concrete facts of the situation before we start drawing all these conclusions, because it's really easy to start drawing all these conclusions without really getting clear on the facts. Um. And then the second thing is, what's the most helpful way to look at it and recognize that everything is a choice, right? So like, if you're choosing to employ hygienists, then you also get to decide, okay, you know, if and when they show up late, how am I going to respond to that, right? Now, it's a choice to not say something. It's a choice to say something. They're not making you do anything or not do anything right so notice how the action in and of itself of you know uh, confronting the hygienist that that isn't that in and of itself doesn't make you a strong leader or a not strong leader what I'm really getting at is a layer deeper like what is the energy that is um catalyzing the action or inaction. Is it out of scarcity that you're not saying something or is it just, I'm going to pick my battles and this is not a big deal. The very different energy, right?
0: How do you get to the point? Cause I, the, the language you're using is not the language that's in my brain in terms of how I think over problems. How do you get to the point where you think this is a choice? 'Cause a lot of the times I'll say to myself, This thing is making me mad or yeah. this thing is frustrating me. No. But from listening to you, you're saying, No, 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 no. That thing exists, it's objective. You're choosing to be mad. Correct. How do you how do you jump that gap from my yeah. brain to your stoic brain? <laughs>
1: I can assure you that I'm not always stoic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm like, all you have to do is see me interact with my dog and or children. <laughs> sure. um, I mean, number one, I think it takes practice, you know, and we live in a society where we are taught that things make, you know, situations, people make us feel a certain way. Right. So, so we have to understand what we're dealing with and the world that we live in. And that's kind of the, the common notion, right? That's the, the language that's spoken everywhere, movies, social media, everywhere, right? And so recognizing that is really just the first step to saying, okay, um, that's that's what I've been taught. That's what I've been conditioned to believe. That's the most likely, that's the default in my own thinking, right? So we don't have to judge it, we don't have to think that we're bad or evil or incapable of, of you know changing our habits. We just start with that awareness, right? And so then what we do is, for example, let's say I'm annoyed at my kid, right? I might say to myself, he makes me so mad. And then I pause and I say, okay, well, he just, he did X, Y, and Z, or he said X, Y, and Z. And my brain is like a little, you know, interpreter. Oh, okay. You know, it's translating. It's deciding how I'm therefore going to think about the situation, right? The situation doesn't inherently make us feel anything at all. And so the more we remind ourselves of that, the more we recognize that all the power and control that we have in our entire lives And and mind you, we don't have control over a lot of things. Most things in our life are totally out of our control. And yet we have total control over our experience of our life. And what tends to happen is that we can get so caught up thinking and focusing on what's out of our control. You know, oh my gosh, that patient... Such a pain in the neck. You know, they're asking for a refund or they wrote a bad Yelp review uh, or that staff member that quit with no notice. You know, we're focusing on things that we can't control. And what happens so easily is that when we're caught up thinking that those situations are not in our control and oh my gosh, that then it's so easy for us to get into the slippery slope of giving up control. In areas that we do have control. Like, I can't even tell you how many times on dental forums I have seen, and and I'm gonna warn you, I get really riled up about this. (laughs) I have seen dentists get so upset at patients or whatever happened in their day, and they're like, oh man, I need a drink. And everybody posts and comments things like, oh yeah, you know, like I'll have a drink with you, or no, you deserve five. Or you know, or, you know, or go shopping and you know, retail therapy—you'll feel so much better. And so basically, it's like, okay, we have been taught that when we're stressed out, there's a drink with our name on it. There's, you know, I don't know, some yummy dessert. There's something that we can buy to make us feel better. Um, you know, there, there's all these things that we can do to, you know, basically this is called buffering when we're trying to feel better by doing something externally to get rid of that negative feeling, right? And so, you know, most of the time, you know, some of us maybe go exercise or take a bath or listen to a podcast. That's great. There's not a whole lot of negative consequences to those things. But when we think about the things that could potentially have negative consequences, um, you know, alcohol, not inherently evil, but if we're over drinking because we're stressed out, because we had a bad day in the office, guess what? Now I think I'm feeling better momentarily and there's a price tag to pay, right? Like now that's gonna have a directly, potentially direct, potentially directly negative consequence in my life, right? Or overspending. How does that fix the situation at all, right? And actually we have control over those things. Those are our actions.
0: What was your, or is still your way to buffer situations that you're not proud of?
1: Social media. Mm -hmm. Totally. And, you know, for me, social media is totally a, um, it's like this double-edged sword in a way. I mean, I love it. I love connecting with humans. Totally use it, you know, in my own coaching practice to market, to reach people, to put messages out there. And, oh my gosh, what a great little video of this Labrador retriever doing some funny thing, right? So like, you know, irritated at my kid. Oh, well, there's always some video on Instagram that I can, you know, pull myself out of that moment and feel momentary relief, right? I'm not saying it's bad or evil, but the big underlying question is when we let go of the control that we actually do have over our actions either with you know watching netflix or being on social media or eating or drinking or whatever when we let go of control and we are seeking to have momentary relief from feeling stressed out or any host of negative feelings is it possible that we are no longer Fully being present in our lives, and I would really argue, you know, if there's anything about our life that we want to change, like it, let's say I'm irritated at my kid, I I really wish he'd stop doing X, Y, and Z, and I go distract myself with Facebook in the other room. I'm not actually being present in that moment for him, his needs asking myself, what is it that I feel right now? How can I work through this? How can I improve this? How can I change this for the better? And that's just a a real small example. But think about staff coming in late. I'm going to, you know, not handle that situation. I'm not going to be present for that situation. I'm not going to speak up. For example, I'm going to withdraw. Or maybe I'm just going to focus on the task at hand, see patients, and then I'm going to go have a drink tonight and be stressed out about my staff coming in late every single day. I'm not proactively taking action to improve my life or to establish boundaries if I am escaping it.
0: I think that is the perfect word, escaping, because there is a real risk now in the age we live in you can escape from age zero to 100 and then never actually live. And let's say there is an afterlife or there's not an afterlife, you just wasted probably the only life ever. And that's like the saddest thing that can happen. And it's so easy now. I just joined a gym, I don't know if you can tell, but all the people at the gym are on their phones between sets and they're taking forever to work through that and they're not even present at the gym. All my younger patients are on the phone while I'm trying to work on them. And what you pointed out, like you're buffering these negative emotions, but you probably agree with this. You need these negative emotions to become more of a resilient person as you mature.
1: Yes, 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 exactly. I think you just nailed it. Like there's actually a purpose to that negative emotion like oh you feel stressed oh let's get to the bottom of that what's going on let's think through it right and and i say that with the asterisk of we have to be really careful because and and i could totally talk about this for hours so i'm going to uh, uh, everything i talk about i could go down all these tangents but you know we live in a society that really overly values happiness right and i and i say that Not that I don't want to feel happy all the time. It'd be great to feel happy all the time. But that's not what the human existence is all about. You know, we have a full range of emotions. That's just part of being a human. And if we only think, you know, out of a 100 different emotions, if we only think that we should be feeling the positive ones, that's just a small piece of the, you know, full spectrum So can we tip the odds in our favor so that we're happy the majority of the time? Well, sure. There's things that we can do. That's great. But let's use these opportunities. You know, anytime that we are feeling any host of negative emotions, let's use that as an opportunity to make necessary changes or not even external changes. Although that's great, too. Right. If we need to hire or fire somebody, that's wonderful. Can we also see it as an opportunity to ask ourselves, tune in internally, and say, um, "How am I processing this situation? What am I feeling right now? What is it that I need?" Right, and that there's like tons of opportunity for growth right there. Right, if we're if we're just avoiding it, like, "Oh crap, I'm feeling stressed. I need to jump out of stress into happiness via any one of these buffering actions." It's like we just have a a Band-Aid and we cruise through life masking our underlying negative feelings. And some people would say, that's great. I want to cruise through life and I want to be numb to any kind of negativity. And I'm not here to make any judgment calls. I'm not here to say that you're morally superior if you are choosing not to buffer any negative feelings away. What I am here to say, though, is be intentional about it. Because what I have seen so often is that there are people that, you know, kind of recognize it so far down the road and they're like, oh my gosh, look what I was doing. I didn't even know I was doing this to myself. I didn't even know that I had more control than I realized. Right. And so if we make a decision intentionally, that's it. I'm happy. That's, that's my goal for everybody. You get to decide what is it that you want and then go make that happen.
0: Right. Right. So if happiness is not the ultimate goal, what is? It's a great question. <laughs> I think I think that's
1: like the million
0: dollar question that, <laughs> yeah,
1: we, right. that we all get to answer for ourselves, you know? I mean, for you, know, you then, my, specifically for you. Yeah. So I would say my goal in life is to grow and develop into my highest potential and help other people, if at all possible, along. Their own journeys to do the same, and and how do we define that? That's a really personal thing, right? Like I don't have the definition of like what does it mean to, you know, grow into your fullest potential. But I know for myself personally that, um, you know, personal development, being open to learning, being open to uh, thinking about things differently—that's what stimulates my brain. And, and what helps me feel like I'm on a continual path of inner growth. And so, you know, I, I would say growth over happiness, for sure. Happiness, in my mind, is absolutely a byproduct of that. But there's a real distinct difference between, you know, short-term happiness, pleasure, Versus long-term joy, right? and 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 again, that's like I eat a candy bar. I love it. I feel happy in this moment. Versus I'm gonna go eat a, a plate of beautiful vegetables and some fabulously prepared protein, and I'm gonna feel amazing. And is it the same kind of dopamine when I eat it as when I eat you know a, a candy bar? No, it's not it's not the same. Right. And I think that's where we can get caught up is, um, you know, kind of expecting or hoping that when we do some of these longer term things, we're going to get the same amount of dopamine. And, And we're not, we live in a society where there's a bunch of, you know, in terms of food, there's a bunch of processed stuff that's meant to give you a bunch of dopamine and make you want to keep eating it and and, and consuming more and more. And the same goes for social media and TV and, you know, it's a quick hit dopamine. You want more and more and more and more, right? So it's like I seek longer term types of joy and pleasure, right? It doesn't mean that some of the shorter term things can't also be enjoyed in, in a certain frequency, but what I've learned for myself is if I'm just giving in and indulging my every last whim, that it doesn't typically lead to happiness in the long
0: run. 100%. We are so addicted to the dopamine spikes. I think evolutionary, we evolved to have these spikes like once a month, once a year. And yeah. you are with social media, with candy, with sugar, with alcohol, caffeine, everything. I'm not against caffeine at all, but we get these spikes a thousand times a day. And of course that is much more instantly pleasurable than even a long hangout session with your kids. Cause that's a different type of gratification. But yeah. at the end of your life, you're not going to be excited about the social media. You'll be feel gratified for spending the nice time with your kids and building the relationships. So I think that's exactly. a constant struggle for us and even the younger, younger generation that it's addicting all these modern conveniences. I totally yeah. agree.
1: Yeah. And, you know, going back to, you know, you had asked me like, you know, what's kind of my buffer of choice or, you know, thing where I struggle for sure. It's social media and what I have gotten better about, you know, I I'm in my own journey trying to do better, but what I have gotten better about is really asking myself and being honest with myself. Like if I'm on Facebook or Instagram, why am I on there? What's my, what's my goal? You know, is it just to kill time? is it because i'm stressed out and i'm trying to avoid something is it because i am trying to legitimately connect with other humans in a really productive way right um and so you know i'm on to myself like i i can really identify the times that it is super helpful for me to be on there and be present and the times where it's like you know what you've now crossed the line and now You're affecting your sleep or affecting time that you're going to, or you were hoping to spend with your kids, for example. So that's where, you know, I, um, you know, just try to be really honest with myself. And that's, that's been hugely helpful.
0: Have you ever taken a personality test? The, the big five, the five big factors of personality. I'm not familiar with it. Okay. Conscientiousness, which is like the ability to be self-aware, self-analyze and correct your path. I feel like you would score 100 out of 100 on that. Like you are, when I'm talking to you, you're almost analyzing yourself as if like you're someone else. Because how many, have you heard the phrase like, some people can't smell their own nose. Like they're so unaware. You're the opposite. But there has to be some negative to that. Do you ever feel like you don't give yourself enough grace or you're too hard on yourself?
1: That's a really good question. well, first
0: of all, I, I don't know if I would score a hundred. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm giving the test. I gave you an A+. Yeah. Plus.
1: <laughs> I, that's awesome. I mean, I think we all have blind spots, to be honest. I really do. And um, and I'll, I'll just say I am such a believer in everybody benefiting from working with a coach, you know, and, and I'm not just saying that because I am a coach and I have clients that I enjoy helping. Um, I am a product of the product, you know, and I continue to work with one-on-one coaches. I love working with coaches and, you know, I I don't know that any of us reach a level of Nirvana where we just are a hundred percent perfect and we don't ever have any blind spots. Like I, I don't believe that. Um, I continually am amazed. I'm like, oh my gosh, there is a, there's a different way to see this. I thought I was right about this. And it turns out uh, it's not about being right or wrong. It's like, oh, let me consider an alternative, right? And, and we all have a human brain that likes to play tricks on us, you know? um, likes to uh, make us think that we're unworthy or you know, not good enough. or you know, We all have our own flavors of um, uh, self-defeating thoughts, for example. Um but you know, I mean I, I would say that um one of the one of the um potential downsides, you know, when when you get really deep into um learning about mind management, mindfulness, how your brain creates your reality, um thought work, etc however you want to describe it or define it. One of the potential downsides is that you can have the notion that, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, your circumstances don't determine how you feel. You get to decide how you feel. You get to think about the circumstances and decide how you feel. And so then there can be this uh, flip side where it's like, uh, well, anything can be happening and I should just be able to manage my mind around it. (laughs) Right. Like a robber is coming into the house and I'm just going to, you know, that doesn't stress me out. Therefore, you know, I'm going to kumbaya my way out of this. And it's like, no, there's obviously a time and a place for action (laughs) and we don't have to be at peace with everything. Um, you know, something that I, I, I really enjoy lecturing about is, is, Um, there's a time and a place for changing your thoughts so that you can feel more at peace or you can, or you can generate the types of feelings that you want to feel motivated, confident, whatever. There's other times that we need to just change the situation. If we need to get ourselves out of a marriage or to sell a practice or whatever. Now, can we, hopefully do that from a place, you know, kind of coming full circle here from a, from a place of non reactivity. Can we be mindful in those decisions? Totally. Right. But like, there's a time and a place for action. So, you know, so you ask, you know, kind of like, what's the, what's the negative side of that awareness or the negative side of like being able to, um, you know, thought mer- thought work my way out of things or into feeling great. It's like, well, I have to be careful because I can find peace in most situations. And so then, um, you know, I have to, you know, my learning curve is like, actually, yeah, it's okay to really take action here. This is how we're going to lay down the law or set boundaries or whatever. Um, I hope that makes sense.
0: It does. It does. So we're actually coming up in the hour mark. This flew by. You're so easy to interview. Were Have you been on Sean, I always say his last name wrong, the Innovation in Dentistry podcast?
1: Um. No, I have okay.
0: not. You need to be on it. I used to ask the question, what is one takeaway you'd want the audience to have from this interview? But then I was on his podcast and he had a better question and I'm going to steal it and then take full credit for it. I love it. So the question he now asked me, and the way he, I was like, like, wow, Sean, I'm taking this. So you're walking down the street and you see 18-year-old Dr. Brown and you want to say one piece of advice to move her life in a better direction. What's the piece of advice you'd give her?
1: Hmm. Well, there's two things that came to my mind, and they're both real simple. The first one was you're so much stronger and so much more capable of solving problems than you may initially give yourself credit for. And the second thing was uh, fasten your seatbelt because it's (laughs) going to be a wild freaking ride.
0: I love that. But you say that with a sense of like joy and you're an explorer, like... I would say the same thing to myself, like, listen, there's gonna be a lot of ups and downs, but you're probably going to be okay. So try to have some fun. That's so yeah. good. So yeah. tell people where they can find you, how they can work with you, all your social media, and then how they can just be a better person.
1: Yeah. Well. um, I'll start with that last one. <laughs> you want me to tell people how they can be a better person? <laughs> I mean, I the, the answer to that one is to learn to trust your own intuition, you know, and sometimes, sometimes hearing what somebody else has to say can help inspire you to trust yourself. That's probably the last thing I'd, I'd actually end with is like, you know, there isn't any coach or coach or program, or book that can totally like get you to trust yourself. It's like, yes, it might inspire you for sure. And I can list a whole bunch of really great books, including Jen Sincero's You Are a Badass. That one's amazing. But it's almost like a decision to start trusting in yourself and your own intuition. So I, I don't have any magical powers to get anybody to improve their life dramatically. But what I will say is I do love, 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 and I'm so passionate about helping people to live in integrity intentionally, you know, create what they want in their lives. And I'm such a firm believer in coaching. And I believe that through coaching, we can learn how to make decisions that are consistent with who we want to be. And so that's what I help people do. I don't spoon feed answers. Um, Anybody that's interested to learn more about my coaching work or what it looks like to work with me can, you know, go to my website. That's drnetanya.com. I'd be happy to schedule a uh, complimentary consultation with anybody. You can do that on my website, drnetanya.com forward slash connect. Um, Other great ways to find me, of course, is uh, through my podcast, which is the Life Coaching for Dentists podcast. And that is available on, you know, all major podcast uh, platforms. Um, I also have a couple resources that could be helpful to some of your listeners. So one is um, I've created a burnout assessment for dentists specific to dentists and to take that assessment. Um, You just go to drnatania.com forward slash burnout assessment, all one word, Um, uh, as well as a free masterclass that is called how to make decisions with confidence and stop second guessing yourself. So to access that class, um, you would go to drnatania.com forward slash confidence And so these are just a couple ways um, that people can find me. I'm, you know, as I mentioned, I'm on social media, on Facebook, as well as Instagram. I can be found on Instagram. Um, My um, username or whatever is at Dr. Natanya. And um, so, yeah, I'm, you know, uh, uh, easy to reach, easy to find, easy to reach. Um, And, you know, my sincerest hope is, you know, if I can help dentists reduce burnout and create more joy in their lives than I know I am doing my work.
0: I think you already are. I think you are helping a lot of people. I can already tell just by the hour getting to know you that you truly want to help people. You're not trying to just like create this program, do this thing and abandon them inside of your soul you will be a more complete person the more people you're helping. And that shines through even just this hour. So I really appreciate your time, Natanya, and I hope to talk to you soon.
1: Thank you so much. This has been a real, real treat and an honor to get to be a guest on your podcast. So thanks so much.
0: Thank you. Talk to you soon.